Hello, everyone. My name is Ryan Griggs, and I'm the host of the Renaissance Podcast. And today, alongside me, I have Logan from Fire and Farm. Thank you for joining. And thanks for having me. This is uh, this is a first for me, I guess. This is uh, I'm usually on the other side of the mic with my own podcast, but uh, it's a long time coming. We're going back and forth, so I'm I'm really grateful to be here and chat with you. Yeah. So we had a really awesome phone conversation. I think it was last week, and mm-hmm. I guess to get started, if you just wanted to share. Yeah, your, your, your background and your upbringing, because I know this has been a big part of you since, as you can remember, I would assume. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so uh, I didn't grow up on a family farm. Um, I actually started, my, my first job was delivering uh, papers when I was a kid. We uh, always, you know, mom and dad always wanted to make sure that we inst- got uh, that work ethic instilled in us. Um, and then it, when I was uh, 12, I got hired to be just kind of a, a, a yard guy on a farm and really fell in love with it. And uh, I worked uh, summers and, and falls with, with him in Liberty, Saskatchewan uh, for like 10 or 11 years and really uh, drove my passion for agriculture and land. And it, it's just so beautiful. You're, you're outside when it's nice out. And I always love that because uh, the, the job I had before was, was uh, working as a, a butcher. And um, I hated that being inside, but I learned a lot of valuable skills doing that. Um, but something about being outside with crops really spoke to me. So um, I took an interest to that, enrolled in the University of Saskatchewan Agricultural Program, which is, uh, I would say, a top two in the in the country. Um, you know, there's a couple in Ontario that would probably beg to differ, but um, we're, it's right there. So through that, did a lot of networking. Um, you know, classes are kind of so-so, but the networking is usually where the value is there. And uh, ended up landing a job, um, I guess, first in Nokomis with, uh, with a Blair's Egg, which is an egg retail, and uh, now out in uh, Rosetown uh, working for uh, another egg retail, Simplot, which would be uh, more familiar for the United States listeners or in both countries. So, um, you know, we're just really passionate about the, the soil health and, and um, the longevity of the communities that work in that in agriculture like saskatchewan is a it, we have you know potash mining oil and agriculture and that's if you're not working in one of those three you're either a teacher or a nurse kind of thing so um yeah and you know through working with that and kind of uh understanding where we are in the world um given all these circumstances i uh i rode that fear of of starting my own uh little ranch and by no means is it um, paying any bills, but I think that, um, you have to start. I, I told you on the phone there that I think, uh, or I, you know, it's kind of a calling to me that I have to be the, the guy, uh, the man of the family who provides meat and food and sustenance for, uh, my wife and two boys. So, um, knowing where my food came from and just do, uh, blind trust in myself, I was able to just find a lease put a couple cows out there and learn for the summer and uh, really glad I did that. So um, that's kind of my journey. You know, I'm still working in, in ag retail and, and that uh, industrial space, but um, keenly interested in, in understanding and learning how my food uh, gets to my plate and being the one who was going to provide that. Right. So that's, that's awesome. So one thing to take it back to whenever you're a kid working on the farm, you said you were 12 years old. Yeah, 12, I think. Yeah, yeah. So if you can, because I'm trying to remember back when I was 12, if you can remember, just what was that experience like as you're on that land? 
and uh, yeah, especially um, at that young of age. I it w- it was actually it was quite uh, insane because like um, my, I remember my first day, uh, the guy I was helping farm. We had to move augers, so an auger is something that moves grain kind of up and down. It, it's uh, I guess most people know that. And we were moving augers to a different uh, different vineyard, and he just said, you know, hop in that truck and follow me. And I had never driven before, <laughs> so he just kind of assumed that I, I would know what I'm doing. And I I remember getting in the truck and being like, okay, mom has ten and two, in case she presses the brake before putting it in drive. And I and I was just like, holy shit, I am driving a truck right now with an auger behind and like following him. It was like eight or nine miles, uh, and. I didn't tell my mom for about a year that my first day I was I drove in a truck. <laughs> I laugh about it now, but it, it could have been ugly. Oh, very. That yeah. that's yeah. just wild. But then, like you said, to, yeah. To answer your question, working on the land, like there is a, like I'm a I'm an Earth Day baby, so that has always kind of like spoken to me. I think as a deeper meaning, and um, it just like it really resonated with me to be. I I was the one who planted the crop, and then I would swath. Um, and then I would, uh, help in the, the second combine. So like, I kind of was, I was able to do the full, uh, meal deal of like, you know, checking the runs, checking cedar depth, you know, very important to be able to plant that crop where it needs to go. Um, and, and it's just long hours pass very quickly. It, you know, very easy to be on the drill by 6am, you know, as, as a teenager, when a lot of my other friends were you know, probably sleeping in kind of gaming from the night before. Um, so there's, there's a lot of hours where it's just like, it was just me. And they, this is before like anybody had social media on their phone. So I was just listening to AM radio, like for hours and just eating it all up and kind of being by myself. It, it was like premeditation kind of thing. I don't know. You have a lot of thoughts by yourself when you're 13, 14, 15. Yeah. But that's a great point that you mentioned about just your first day and the fact that the farmer just kind of expected you to do that. Because I hear this a lot, just on the topic of just younger age children working on the farm. And I just think there's just some preconceived notions about how the owners of the farm are kind of using their children as like slave labor or, or, or something like that. But whenever I worked on the farm last year, he had three kids. Um, one was, I believe, five or six, and the other one was three or four. And they always just wanted to be outside. They wanted to help with everything that was not forced whatsoever. And then I actually hopped on the phone recently with him. And it's been a full year now since I've been there. And so they've obviously grown another year. And he's just talking about how they're adding more responsibilities, but they just, they want to be a part of that. And it just, I, that's what I love about agriculture and working on, on a farm too, is you're developing work ethic and just so many critical life skills at such a young age that it puts you f- way ahead of especially in today's society, it puts you way ahead of most people. Um, you, you develop discipline. Uh, you, you feel way more connected to the world. It's, yeah, it's just an entirely different lifestyle, obviously, than being in a, a major city. Uh, but I just always find that fascinating when talking to people that, uh, like Amish, for example, too, that they have so many children. And yeah, uh, yeah. so that's why I'm just curious with that, too. Did you feel at that well, age I, like, that you were being used at all like that? No, not at all. Like, not at all. Like, uh, the guy, uh, Greg, who I helped farm, I would call him like my second grandpa. Um, (laughs) I think that, I think that there's, there's two ways to look at this. Like if, if you, 
if you have or part of a farm that doesn't have a, a kind of a succession plan or a uh, a way to pass down um, the land and animal resources or whatever to the kids and and like a structure of keeping that in the family if you don't have that if you don't have that culture within your your family farm yeah it's probably going to feel like you know it's slave labor or whatnot but if if you i guess if you can't teach that 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 divinity of working on the land or with animals uh in the family farm then maybe the kids do have to go away for a year or 10 years to kind of understand that you know it's pretty good out here to work in a rural setting right so um I, like I said, there's, I think there's just two ways to look at that. It, you, you're either raised in that nurturing, um, wholesome farm value, or it's punishment. Um, you know, you gotta, I, I think it all just comes down to leadership in that. And um, probably, unfortunately, too many bad stories um, dominate the good, um, which is maybe part of the times. But um, I, I think it just all comes down to how your family business is structured in my in my opinion right and i'm i wasn't family to this guy but he made me feel like i was you know part of the operation and excited to go you know plant um and harvest and you know cut grass in july when there's when there's nothing really going on right just to cleaning out bins kind of thing so um i think it's just the connection of of who's managing that that's a really good point on the on the fact that you said he made you just feel like a part of it because that's exactly what the farm I was on, this is essentially what he was saying too with his children. And I mean, they would always want to be outside and, and helping. Whenever we'd go to farmer's markets, they, they'd always want to help too. So yeah, I just yeah. found that interesting. On just transitioning a little bit, you mentioned going to Saskatchewan University and mentioning that it was a top two agriculture. Can you talk about just the, I guess, the ecology of Saskatchewan? Because again, on the phone, you mentioned how you argued it's the last frontier. And so I just would love to hear you talk more on that because that's coming from someone who I've never been to Canada. Uh, I guarantee you most Americans have never been to Canada. And so that would be, yeah, yeah that'd be great to shed light on. Well, yeah, the most times Americans come up to Saskatchewan is to go bird hunting in the fall. We've got like some world-class bird hunting and, and freshwater fishing. So um, a lot of people don't come, a lot of Americans don't come up here for the other types of tourism. Um, yeah, for the, um, landscape, I guess, of Saskatchewan, it's very flat. Um, but we have very good soils. Um, our organic matter, I would say across the board is for sure north of 3%, uh, on average, like I'm dealing with some stuff where we've taken soil samples in 2001 and it was like 1.8 and that stuff is now sitting at like close to four, hmm. which is a pretty miraculous turnaround. Um, the, I guess the university, um, University is uh, so I took ag business, which is like a, it's like a economics and, and marketing uh, with agriculture. Um, there's there's agronomy and then the animal science division. And uh, um, I guess I can't really speak for the animal science division other than, you know, the girls are usually the rowdiest at Thursday nights. Um, but the uh, ag, uh, the agronomy program, I think, is, is as world class as you can get. And uh, I think that the fact that they focus a lot on soil health. Like I heard in, in a couple of my electives, it would be the soil health that gets, uh, I don't want to say preached, but taught as, as kind of the fundamental structure. And I think that that's the right place to start. You know, um, the, the soil, and I, like I told you on the phone, the civilizations live and die on the top six inches of soil, right? So um, how we treat that and how we uh, respect that 
you know, the life that that gives is, it, it does contribute to a healthier society all like wholeheartedly. So um, I don't know if I answered your question. No, you did. Kind of, yeah. Okay. With that too, just on the topic of organic matter, because you're mentioning that across the board, it's around 3% and you did sampling in 2001 and it was 1.8 and now it's yeah. definitely increased. Can you just talk for the listeners that might not know what organic matter is and then why it's so important? Yeah. Or, organic matter, I guess in layman's terms, like the, the, the breakdown of all plant and, and life matter into like, a um, uh, how should I put it? A, a carbon based, um, layer on the top of your soil. Um, Saskatchewan is really blessed that we have cold winters. And I say that because our soils are only, uh, in use for about five months of the year out of 12 where, um, you know, after the combine has gone through and spread uh, chaff on top of the soil, we get kind of a natural um, barrier layer to protect it from, from the sun and the elements. And all that uh, microbial activity, the breakdown of the straw, the breakdown of um, any kind of compost, uh, all that life happens underneath the snow and it's still going on. So we're able to we're able to build our organic matter that way because of the winter and the snow cover, the snow acts as a natural way of um, keeping that light. It's like, uh, um, what are those wood chips called that you put in your garden? Um, sorry, Ryan. No, you're good. The, what, you know what I'm talking about? The wood chip. Whatever. Yeah. I just don't know the term, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Anyway, so we can cut that anyways, but like <laughs> the, 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 the keeping the sun and the elements separated from the top layer of the soil allows it to continue to break down. And, um, you know, it, it seems like for, for others, like you, you got to make use of that land at all times, but it's truly a blessing to keep soils healthy is to let it rest because you, you may think in the winter things are dying, but underneath all that snow cover, all the bugs and the beneficials are still doing their work, breaking things down, eating and defecating and creating that natural cycle underneath to keep our our soils at at bay at, at in a i don't I, I guess i can use a regenerative uh way but like the snow really is a regenerative force for saskatchewan farmers hmm. and then on just what does three percent organic matter mean three percent organic matter means um well first of all like for for working in the um um, monocrop space, like 3% organic matter kind of turns into like 25 pounds of N. So like every, for every percent of organic matter, you can increase, you're getting like seven to 10 pounds of, of naturally occurring nitrogen. And also, uh, I, I can't remember the figure, but I think it's like 10,000 liters of water for, uh, of water holding capacity for every uh, percent of organic matter. Um, and that's another thing 20. we measure uh, up here, is it 20? Yeah. 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 Uh, Go ahead. It, you, you're, yeah, your number is probably, probably correct. Um, another thing we measure up here is uh, CEC. So that's like, that's the soil profile. And we use that, like we have, you know, clay loams, sandy loams kind of thing. Where I work is a lot of heavy clay. So that we, we have a tough time uh, with FOSS availability in those soils, but our water holding capacity is insane. Like we'll have a crust on the top, like, in 2021, we had a record drought here. Like we maybe had an inch or so over the growing season. Like it was really bad. Um, like you know, historically, probably the worst year. The soil here um, had a crust on it, like with the top inch. 
underneath was still wet. It, it's kind of insane how well that the a clay soil will hold that. So we, we, we look at that as, uh, what, when going over soil samples with farmers as well. It's like, okay, what kind of soil structure are you dealing with here? And that soil structure can change, um, you know, seven different times in a field. And, and that's why a lot of guys uh, up here are, are going to like a, a SWOT or electroconductivity mapping of their soils to they'll run a, uh, an EC machine over top of their soil. Like it's just, it just, uh, it, it measures uh, how gravity flows and it measures like where your depressions and where your ridges are. And then we take a soil sample from each of those and we make sure that we're putting fertilizer and seed um, and matching our agronomics to each specific zone in the field, which is kind of cool. Like it's uh, more guys every year are doing that and not making sure that every dollar of fertilizer that they're spending is going to the right place and making sure that, you know, it's not going to leach off, you know, everybody gets, everybody gets angry at that, but like putting it in the right place, deeper banding it and making sure that we're not wasting that money is a pretty cool feature in ag tech now, but. That's cool. And then just on the topic with the water holding capacity, why that's such an important thing is when you think about just all flooding and then just water runoff, that's a huge, huge issue, especially in America. Will Harris, this was, I can't remember how long ago the video was, but he had a great video showcasing the difference between his farm, the neighbor farm that's conventionally uh, raised and just how awful the flooding was going on on their side. And not only on top of that, just the, the, the color of the water and the runoff that was going on compared to his farm was just astounding. And I think that's the, the greatest visual you could see from the impact of doing it the right way versus the wrong way and the, the impact that can have from just a water standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I know what video you're talking about. It is like, it is a, a great showcase of what good soils will do for water, water holding capacity. And, you know, something we deal with up here is like, we've got a lot, like hilltops don't grow um, or have a tough time growing, especially in this uh, drier um, era we seem to be in. Um, but everybody, when we spray, just decides to kill the hilltops, right? Like you don't allow any vegetation to grow. Well, how is water and sunlight going to penetrate that to, to like regenerate that soil? We, we've, we've compounded, uh, you know, salt fertilizers on, on an area where there's no uh, roots to break down that salt fertilizer. So you're getting a compounding effect of, of that. And then also you're killing anything that is growing there that will be using that to trying to break that down. So we're, 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 we're throwing a double-edged um, sword at a problem that we honestly, we, we shouldn't fertilize those hilltops and we shouldn't be killing the even if it is weeds growing there, we shouldn't be killing the weeds that are growing there because the roots of those weeds are still going to help break down that um, that salts that have compounded there and allow for more water penetration. So um, f from that standpoint, like we still have a lot to do. Um, you know, it's getting better every day, but we're we're throwing like I told you on the phone, we're throwing um, the wrong we're, we're throwing products at a problem instead of using practices to solve the problem. Right. So, yeah, and that's great. I think that's a good segue into the ag retailing that you've been doing. And just mm -hmm. the topic of that, I, if you could just share more of your experience through that and just everything that you see, uh, would love to hear more on that. Yeah. Um, so I guess for some people who don't know, there's ag retails kind of all over the world. Um, 
selling uh, fertilizers uh, mainly. That's what I focus on because I know that that uh, pays every year in a conventional ag system. Um, I know that um, there, there's a lot of uh, angst towards, you know, um, glyphosate and, and other chemicals that are used and, and for reasons I completely understand. Uh, I would just say that glyphosate is probably the least of your concerns for, for some of the stuff that's in the shed. Um, but uh, as far as, as far as egg retails go, um, there, the, I think there is a lot of um, more work that needs to be done. I think it's become way too productized. Like everybody and their dog has a product that will, wants to go on our shelf to go spray on a field. And we don't stress enough about practices. And that's kind of, you know, like where your podcast and, and, and others are, are trying to steer people or have this conversation that Mother Earth, how am I going to word this? Mother Earth is undefeated and we can't throw products at problems. So like we've got a weed called kosha that keeps showing up in areas where um, there's low crop competition or some salinity in the soil. And we keep trying to throw a, uh, something to kill that. And now it's becoming resistant to a whole mitt full of weeds, a uh, mitt full of chemicals. Um, but instead of changing how we approach that, we're just throwing gasoline on a fire and creating a bigger problem. So like kosher does not compete well with two or more um, plants in the area. So if we're intercropping, which I'm a, I'm a large believer in intercropping and in, in diverse species and fields, the kosher problem largely goes away. And, but we don't, we're not ready to have that conversation yet of, yeah, you might have to break up five acres of your 160 into something different, but it is very convenient just to run the sprayer over that or to look a blind, turn a blind eye to it. Like it's, I understand that it's very convenient and changing practices is super hard and super inconvenient. And it isn't good for the large mono or the megalith corp farm that does, it treats every field the same, right? The changing practices uh, really favors the small farm. And I think that that's a beautiful thing because it scales more on a smaller farm. So, um, and then I guess on the other sides of egg retail, like I, I talked about how we're trying to place fertilizer and, and seed in the most appropriate way. I know a lot of listeners, you know, um, of this podcast or something would, would, um, would bang on uh, monocropping and, and big egg. And I understand those reasons for sure. I'm, I, like I said, I'm a, I'm an intercrop enthusiast and um, soil health enthusiast and, it is just you can't change that overnight and you know if we have more discussions like this i i think and and honestly and if we continue to have some weed problems that, that we continue to have these large large corporation farms are gonna just have to change um or else they're you know the land resource that they've paid for or are using is gonna go by the wayside and like i said the health of communities and civilizations is dependent on the top six inches of soil that we, um, that we live near. Right. So, um, I, I don't know, I don't know where, where else you'd want me to go with that, Ryan, but like, no, that's great. The, I, I, yeah, I was just gonna I, add a couple of things just because yeah. <clears throat> with glyphosate, I mean, that's the huge yeah, topic, huge. Um, I mean, that's the most talked about side, whether from the herbicides, insecticides and, and, uh, mm-hmm. pesticides, um, and with that, and with just the huge Monsanto lawsuits, I mean, I think it's nearly $11 billion now. They've got constant mm-hmm. lawsuits going on. And with the topic, in, specifically in America, too, with the rise of gut issues around wheat, specifically with uh, with um, 
just like gluten and sensitivities because there's so many people that go to say Italy where you eat all kinds of pasta and bread and then they're like, oh my gosh, I, I feel so great. Why, why do I feel like this? But then I go back home to America and it's like that. And a lot of the topics are with glyphosate specifically and it's just a really awful chemical that's heavily sprayed and then it gets going back to runoff. It goes into it's the abused, water. It's abused, right? It's yeah. not heavily sprayed. It's abused. Like it, it was meant to be a, 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 an option of maybe uh, I'm going to, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and say that when it was first brought to market, it was an option of last resort to, uh, you know, either pre-burn the field as, as a, as a clear up or, you know, if you're really having tough, tough issues is to spray it instead of tilling, which is from a soil health perspective, it's still better to spray that than to till. But the fact that we're using it sometimes three to four times in a season, in one growing season, um, you know, especially in wheat, um, alarming, definitely. Um, but again, like you have to be able to, you, you got, these things are products, not practices. And a lot of, a lot of, uh, um, chemical salespeople, um, have lost that, that way of thinking it's, you have to, you have to structurally change your practice first before you use a product. And I, I know that there's sales incentives and structures for people, uh, at these, at these large, um, corporations to get more chemical out. It's just that at what cost are, are we doing this? Right. There's a need for them I, or, you know, you can argue that there, there's a place for them. We just can't continue to abuse what we have or else we're going to have some very resistant weeds and some continually very sick people eating these diets right like we've had we're a wheat belt we supply a lot of the world's wheat here um we've had bug issues for three years because of drought i am only buying organic wheat or organic right we have sprayed a lot of insecticide on to save wheat crops up here and one needed right to protect the farmers uh um bottom line like we still need them to be able to survive we don't have a a, a crop insurance system like america does where you're you know if you have land you're almost essentially guaranteed a profit right which um is good good and bad right the longevity of the family farm is is obviously key but um you have you, to go back to your point these food systems are damaged not broken but they're damaged and i think awareness like these conversations that we're having are great because we can start to vote with our wallet on what sort of farm uh food production systems we want to support right and i, I know that will harris will say that uh you know the feed the world stuff is is uh kind of bs because um you know this should come from each individual community feeding their own community right um and which i would agree with but we're just we're not quite there yet and but I think guys like guys like you and me who want to start that farm and feed only our community first are that's the first step and it's baby steps. You can't you can't take that gargantuan leap because that gets pretty ugly. So. Definitely. And you also mentioned that there are other chemicals that are much, much worse than glyphosate. And I was hoping that you could shed light on that as well, because I know, again, for for most of the audience and just a lot of people on on social media, because agriculture, specifically regenerative agriculture, is picking up a lot of steam. So yeah, the, the it hot, should. Yeah. And the topic of glyphosate is the most talked about one and pretty much the only talked about one. So yeah, I'd love to hear mm -hmm. 
what you yeah so glyphosate is essentially or it's, it's mostly salt water um i think it gets demonized because it's the most sprayed um it you know it's certainly not healthy for you but there is there is chemicals that are used in south america and here paraquat diquat that you know if you get it on your skin it's activated by the sun it will burn you um so it, it's 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 a very it, it's quick acting but it's you know it's it's not none of these things that that are sprayed um are great for your skin you know like you know you you smell 2,4-D which will be in a lot of your lawn and garden weed killers as a it's a selects out kind of dandelions or or what have you from from a grass um you can smell that from a mile away and I I'm not going to go into the breakdown of it but I just can't imagine that that's great for you when you can smell that um and again these are products that we have um they're used as you know, for my customers, uh, tools and not a practice, but glyphosate, um, is by no means the, uh, the biggest evil, um, out there, I guess, or the, the, the worst thing for your health. Um, I, I, I think it is getting shit on rightfully so, cause we abuse it. And I think that there has to be some, you know, pushback on that because using it four times in a year, whatever it is, is, um, just an abuse of, of a tool, right. And just, it's just lazy and and that's what's that's what's i guess that's what really sucks about the the industrial farming is that it it's become there's a little bit there's not enough creativity in how we're solving our problems and like i said before it it really sucks when i go to these meetings and we have people that um they all they talk about is product 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 we have you know five companies that come in it's product 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 and not one person is talking about practice 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 or you know different things in our soil it's just we've lost our way a little bit and i think we can recover um there's so many smart people in this industry like it's so many it's it blows my mind that you know some of these soil health conferences i go to like we need to be promoting and championing those people and those conferences and um yeah it's it's just there's a reason a podcast like yourself or um some of these others are starting up is because everybody can see that we've lost our way a little bit and we can correct it because you know we're we're sm- we're not dumb people we're smart people we can we can make this work we're all of god's children right so there's there's all there's, there's so much light in agriculture and not darkness like the light will always beat out the dark and we just have to continue to have these conversations and practice what you preach right you have to vote with that dollar or start your own farm right you have to do that um it's a calling i think for our generation to do that that's great. That's also just wild on some of the chemicals you're mentioning with burning your skin, which is really yeah. alarming considering our skin is the biggest organ of our body and mm-hmm. needing to wear essentially a hazmat suit just to spray those is that's yeah, that's pretty, pretty alarming sign. You, you'd be surprised, Ryan, at the amount of old farmers out here that don't wear any like gloves or nothing when they're mixing something, mixing a batch. Like it's, it's wild. Uh, you know, I would definitely be in the hazmat suit. I'd be the hazmat suit guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so just transitioning a little bit too, just going into you actually starting your own farm or your own ranch. Mm-hmm. How long, I, yeah, I guess, did you just, can you just explain that process? Um, did you just dive in and find local cows and just started and just figured out as you went? Or did you have a game plan really set in stone to where this is what I'm going to do this year. And then the following year, I'm going to add a little bit more. Um, yeah, I, I guess I can, I'll start from the very beginnings. Like I said, I'm a, 
I'm an Earth Day baby, and I think that uh, that speaks to my soul. So I've always been interested in these these areas of fields that weren't productive and like and and soil health. Um, I've read a, a number of books over the last couple three years on soil health, and um, I had looked into hemp production to try and pull salts out of these fields. Um, never went down that business, but like was keenly interested in it. Um, but every time I did this deep dive into soil health, it all came back to ruminant animals and like I said, I grew up in the, in the crop side of, of agriculture. I always just thought cows were just the, you know, a dumb animal we eat and they were just in feedlots and I never understood why somebody would do it. And, you know, that's why a lot of my meat growing up was, was hunted, right? We, my dad and I, that's kind of our thing to do is we, we hunted our, our meat. So deer and elk and, and moose and whatnot. So, um, but it, every, every time I did, did this deep dive, it kept coming back to, to cows. So that was about, uh a year and a half or two years ago now and then i decided okay if it's if cows are the thing that really regenerate the soil how do i implement that in saskatchewan given that we like uh, how do i implement a business model for in saskatchewan that I, I don't have to go take a giant loan and uh and you know really put stress on my family because i think you know mitigating stress is is the biggest thing a man can do for his family is, is keep all stress levels low for kids wife and yourself so um, I, w- I was playing around and, and trying to find some, um, you know, the right animal for my business, the right place, uh, pasture for, to start it. And, uh, it just so happened. There's a guy who was running elk up here. Um, um, there's a 90 acre chunk with three different paddocks and he was out of elk farming for the last two years and it was just sitting dormant and it was kind of on my drive to work on my commute. So I said, you know, riding that fear uh i was like well if i don't make this phone call and ask what he's doing with that then i'll kick myself kind of forever so i did he's more than happy to rent it out um so i i secured secured the pasture for this year um and again i didn't have water or you know anything really figured out i just kind of took that leap of faith and then when i was looking at which cow or which kind of cow operation i wanted to get into i i've the egg community is small, but really knowledgeable. So I was polling and texting everybody from, you know, Kevin Blair, you know, really appreciate him, Rylan Crawford. You know, I'm going to give first name shout outs, Josh Sandin, like these guys who are in the, in the arena doing it. Uh, I can't thank them enough because I, I would text them at all hours. And, you know, I got a response like within minutes, like as if I was in the room with them, which is just, it's awesome when people are that passionate about what they do and that willing that uh willingness to help is is it's awesome so um i i I looked at my uh weed and grass situation uh at the paddocks and i kind of needed a hardier animal there you know it's not pure lush grass you know there's some weeds in there um so that's why i i settled on longhorns um so i i I bought some longhorns i was able to work the phones um kind of just phoned around saskatchewan and classifieds and just talking to different cowboys and, and, and got some, um, about an hour North of where my pasture is. Um, just because in my first year, I, I didn't want to, I, I, I don't know as enough. Right. So I wanted to just learn the stalker side operation first. So, um, putting animals on, on pasture and moving them uh, through my paddocks. Um, I, I didn't really have to move them. I only had three, um, which isn't, you know, it's a pretty small operation, but just to move them, from I've got three 30 acre paddocks in a row. So just to move them from one to the other, um, to kind of get familiar with that. And um, 
the longhorn will eat a lot of my uh, unfavorable uh, weeds, whereas an Angus uh, probably won't. So that's that's why I took them or chose them. And also, it's just like there has to be a little bit of an art form to your business, and not a lot of people run longhorns up here. And um, if you to me, I looked at it, if I can build a brand out of with it because build a brand out of it use an animal that nobody else uses, use that animal for reasons that are agronomically sound, and then um, market that direct for my community. Um, that was kind of my first year game plan and it's worked, which has been awesome. So I'm going to expand a little bit for next year. Um, but that's, that's how I got into that is this, I, I, I took a leap of faith. I knew that in my, in my soul, I needed to do it. Um, it scared the shit out of me because I didn't come from cows. I didn't know anything about cows. All I've done is read books on cows and um, and you Joel Salatin and Greg Judy videos ad nauseum, right? So, you know, I, I'm like every other millennial cowboy farmer. Um, it's you, we go to the school of Greg Judy and Joel Salatin, right? So, um, but at the end of the day, you have to ha- like you have to ha- be. It's scary, like it's for sure scary. But like, just starting is so key. And having my first year under the belt, like my my the longhorns are in the freezer now and uh, customers have uh, picked up their order. And I like, I couldn't be more grateful for the community support. Um, it's just been awesome. And every, like, like I said, everybody recognizes this, that they want to buy meat locally, right? Like it, it's, it's becoming a it, part of the, the conscious conversation. Um, so a, a little bit of right timing uh, on both the business side and, and the pasture side and a little bit of just faith, I guess is how I started. So that's awesome. And that's just a great example of just essentially shooting your shot with, with all of that, because in America, there is an insane amount of farmland to where a lot of the owners don't have an heir. And so there's going to be major opportunities to where all you have to do is make a phone call and introduce yourself and just have those conversations. You not you, you have no idea where that might lead you. And same for actually finding animals for what you want to do. And so that's, yeah, yeah that's just I'll- freaking awesome. I'll tell you what, like I, I got pretty made fun of at Coffee Row because like it, at our retail, it's our coffee shop in the local community. Like we're out of town, out of, you know, two very small hundred person towns, but people come to our retail for coffee. And I was a butt of a lot of jokes, which is fair because like I didn't really, really know what I was doing. Um, but I, you know, I laughed with it. I just said, you know, even if they die, at least I learned something. Right. And it was a pretty low cost entry because in commercial cattle production, the longhorns are pretty unfavorable, right? A lot of them are just used to for rodeo circuit. Mm-hmm. So um, when you can, when you get it can get a discounted animal and it does agronomically what you need it to do. And then at the end of the day, it's meat is still um, pretty darn delicious. It, I, um, it, it, it's worked on, on all three levels. And, and uh, but th- that critic, like, like you just got to know that if you get that criticism, it's just that people are, are, they're interested in what you're doing but you have to like you have to feel it in here to know that you you got to have that self-belief i guess like it some of those comments can be really you know kind of annoying which is uh it makes the perseverance a little bit more sweet i guess because they didn't die and i <laughs> they, they were well fed and they were well watered and they did provide uh you know not only sustenance for my family but entertainment for my boys to go out and see cows and be out and feel in the field <laughs> sorry my dog's just going crazy i know you're good uh we can keep talking that's fine so 
Just one second. Or I'll, yeah, I'll yeah. Be right yeah, yeah, you're good. Sorry, brother. Oh, no, it's all good, man. Um, so, yeah, my, my actually question with that, too, I'm just curious. Do you remember what just that feeling was like when you first got the Longhorns and they went on that pasture for the first day? What did it, yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, so, like I said, the, the, the pasture was uninhabited for a couple of years, so, and we've been in a drought. So the grass is very lush. Like I have probably the most lush 90 acres in my RM, which would be like a county, a rural municipality, if it would be a county for you guys. And um, because I don't own any equipment, I had to negotiate them delivered uh, delivered terms, which was, again, still cheaper than, you know, going and buying equipment and having that overhead cost. Like for a small startup farmer, it makes a lot of sense to rent everything. So um, they get dropped off or they, they, they're getting brought out that day and there's just a little bit of rain. And we've got this, uh, like I said, we've got this very heavy clay soil. So he brings them in, he gets stuck because it's it's just a soup kitchen in, in the in the yard gets stuck whatever gets pulled out drives in the pasture drops them off and he goes these might be the luckiest longhorns to ever live because he looked it was just like a glistening really nice lush green and i was like just that little comment was like oh, okay it'll be fine they have enough to eat here you know whatever but it just it was just the calamity of uh of things that could uh go wrong kind of did to start but when they uh, when they were dropped off and they're, you know, I paid for and, uh, you know, shook the guy's hand, thanked him, you know, talked about next year and, and all the plans and whatnot. And he was just he was happy that they were going to a, a, a pasture with some great uh, grass. And uh, it, it was just the nerves were calmed, you know, after that, because, um, you know, it just, you know, him getting stuck and everything. It was just a, just a big to do. It was just. <laughs> It just, you know, it had to be, there had to be a little bit of stress. It couldn't be easy. So, well, and I think it's just interesting that with Longhorns and you're mentioning that just from the rodeo, because me personally, I'm not a fan of, of rodeos at all. I remember going to one uh, mm-hmm. when I first moved to Texas and was one of the, there's one of the many reasons why I was vegan for quite some time. And even coming back, I'm still pretty anti rodeo and, and, and things along that nature, like horse racing. Um, but mm-hmm. that's just cool that you're able to give them the more natural environment for the actual longhorns and give them a much better life than what they previously had. Yeah. Yeah. You, you take something that nobody wants and turn it into something that people need, like just on a business side, be, like I'm not calving these things. I'm buying them from a guy who is calving them, raising them, um, using them for, he's got a rodeo barn in his farmyard, which is, you know, quite a, quite a big to do there um but just taking taking something that nobody wants and turning it into a very uh, nutrient dense low cost per calorie food for my community uh is a bit like when i wrote that down that's a business plan that was like you know if that doesn't work then i then i gotta relook at things but that makes a lot of sense to me right because like i can't calf i can't calf a longhorn for 700 bucks but i can buy i can buy a six a six or 700 weight steer for that put it on grass at 150 pounds. Like I, I can't calf, I can't keep a cow over the, I can't keep a cow for three months over the winter or sorry, a calf over the winter for three months for that. Right. I just can't, that doesn't pay. But when somebody doesn't want it and I can turn it into something different and use it to 
I, I guess at the end of the day, all I'm doing is grass farming. It's because all I want to do is, is, is grow more grass and make sure that that is able to capture sunlight and water. If I have something that does that for really low cost to my business, then why wouldn't I jump on that? And then on top of it, like I said, the longhorn is a way more beautiful animal in my opinion than a, a, a commercial cow. Right. So, um, it, it just worked well. It, it, it was a, it was a something that just kind of put came all together and, uh, it, it, it worked. Like I was able to turn a profit in a first year ranching, which I know it's very small scale, but it turns into, you know, beer and boat gas money. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so like it, it, it works, it, it worked. Right. Which is uh it's a big relief that it, it worked. And, uh, but at, at the end of the day, the only, the only thing I'm looking at is making sure I'm grass farming. I want to make sure my grasses are healthy because the soil to the grass to the protein, it's all one. It's all symbiotic. If you don't have healthy soils, you don't have healthy grass. If you don't have healthy grass, you don't have good beef. And you don't have good beef, you're you're in a tough you're in a tough spot trying to sell that or you know trying to move it right. So um, at the the animal could be kind of whatever. I like the longhorn, like I said, because it's art. But it does a job really well at cleaning up some pasture that got away, and it does a really good job at turning grass into protein so i like that and then on the topic of the soil health because that is just such a critical component to it all and just going back to you mentioning because i love the, the saying it's just throwing all kinds of products and not practices mm -hmm. what are some practices that you think it's really important to to really build and improve the soil health i know you mentioned intercropping so can you just oh like, yeah can you just talk more about that yeah, I can touch on intercropping for sure. And like, I, I'm still very new to uh, the rotational grazing piece. Um, I'm a wholehearted believer in it. Um, but again, I, I have one year of experience and I'm not cross fencing anything next year. That's my plan. I, I wasn't going to, you know, jump in by the turbo wire yet and whatnot, but um, just from an intercropping standpoint, um, plants are conscious. Um, they're able to talk to each other when you have a pulse um, you know, something that fixes, fixes nitrogen and an oil seed, um, they, they work really well together. So the pulse will fix nitrogen and put it into the soil and the oil seed will pull that out and, and use that. So you don't have to add any, um, any, um, industrial fertilizer. Um, obviously there still needs to be some phosphate there. Um, however that, that goes about, but just, and, and then on a breathability standpoint, so a lot of pulses, um, um, they perspirate and perspiration in a monoculture setting leads to disease. Whereas if you intercrop that, the say, say a, a, a flax and a chickpea, that flax will help wick away that dew or that, that perspiration and actually just like suck it up and use it. Hmm. And it also helps um, airflow through the plant so that it can dry off. We had a lot of wind, right? So it's the, when you look at nature, nothing is in monocrop. Um, everything is working harmoniously. So, in, and in a mono or in a polycrop setting, uh, the roots will talk to each other. So if you have, if you have a, a place of saturation, those roots will start exudating or exudating water to places that are more dry. And we've seen that in labs, in lab studies. So like they want to be together in duality. And I think that that's, uh, I, I think all you're doing is recreating God's grace and it's, uh, um, it's a beautiful thing. And then, then in the harvestability side, the, uh, the flax bowls uh, are help broken down by the size of the chickpeas. So when it's going through the combine, 
it's it's like you don't have to readjust your settings you don't have to put in something special because the chickpea seed will help break down the flax bowls and then you get it like you don't have to reconfigure your combine it's like it was supposed to be done and that's hmm. it's so cool um and yeah, you know, we've got a, a intercrop expert. We've had her on our podcast, Lana Shaw. Um, she's just fantastic, doing some great research out of Red versus Saskatchewan. So, um, yeah, I'm a I'm a big believer in it. Yeah, it's very like it's very inconvenient to separate the seed at the end, but then again, it's just you know practice over over product. And it's also just amazing just hearing that example of just adding one intercrop species for that with how small of a detail that that helps because you're just mentioning just the moisture but that can change yeah, like chickpeas like chickpeas uh where you know if you were to monocrop chickpeas they're probably sprayed with the fungicide minimum three times wow when they're intercropped with flax their data has shown that you really don't have to spray them with a fungicide hmm. just and that's 80 that's a minimum 80 bucks an acre canadian that you don't have to spend on top of is, fixing the health of everything too from that standpoint right yeah exactly like it was so that that's 80 bucks just from product that's not counting your man hours or your sprayer cost to go over that so like at the end of the day you're probably at 100 bucks an acre just to keep that alive and i something i i, I talk about often is we're we're killing things that want to live and keeping things alive that want to die and so what's going on why is that that shouldn't be like gaia is always in perfect harmony it's always wins right so why is that kosher growing there it's not because it hates you. It's because Mother Earth wants to be covered in something. It needs to have green foliage. And we've selected out things that can survive there or that used to survive there. So now we've got this nasty bitch of a weed. It's, we have to take a step back and look at things that, why are we keeping things alive that want to die and killing things that want to live? <laughs> that's such a great point. And then just, just on the topic of weeds too, that's what kind of blew me away when learning just about the soil science and, uh, essentially the soil pyramid that whenever part of the system is out of whack, then that causes diseases or these weeds that just pop up. And I don't know, it's just so fascinating how interconnected the whole system is. And it just kind of reminds me of just human anatomy to where something's going on and you fix that, then the whole system picks it back up and it's the same exact thing for agriculture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, like I said, Mother Earth is undefeated and wants to be covered in green foliage. So um, if we look at desertified areas, it's more or less um, can be solved by practice. You know, Alan Savory can say he can he can regenerate almost any soil, right, with ruminants and and compact and uh, and uh, tight animal um, herding, um, which uh, until until he's proven wrong, I think he's right. Like, I, I think that we can, all, all of these, like these salinity areas that we have, they're not just waste, they're, they're not a wasteland. It's just a wasted opportunity. And we just have to be able to look at things a little bit different. So, um, yeah, the, the, the soil wants to grow something. That's its purpose. It's to feed as above, so below. It's trying to make its, its below, um, healthy by creating something above and, trying to kill it and you know we have these white salty patches in the field and they aren't growing anything so but if we if we're able to change the way we we look at things and and you know it's re like i said it's really inconvenient to go separately do one acre out of 160 it is super inconvenient and almost not a way not worth your time but 
if you want if 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 you want that help that soil to be healthy and productive for your kids or what have you we just got to change the way we're doing things just a little bit it, yeah i know it's super inconvenient i know that so the last yeah. question i had was kind of going back to when you mentioned just the the bed of snow and how that really helps with the soil health as well for that example especially in saskatchewan is there a lot of uh animals that are going around and and on these pastures too because i know during that time you'd supplement with hay or, or something else because uh, this is also just kind of going with the rotational grazing and I mean, you're doing ruminants as well. And yeah, I just yeah. wanted to hear more on that. Yeah. Like a, a cow will go find uh, grass under snow. Um, there's a lot of guys, you know, especially in like Southern Alberta that are, are winter grazing in pasture, which is kind of wild. Um, a lot of guys will do like uh roll out bale and bale graze kind of on top. So like, a, a way to a way to use your winter pastures that I've I've been reading this again not from experience just from just from reading and trying to understand it is you know some of these areas that um, aren't great uh, grass or um, areas of productivity on, on your pasture land or on your farm is these guys are taking uh, bales of hay and rolling it out they're uh, they're underseeding it so underseeding it before the winter comes with a like a triple forage uh, triple grass mix kind of thing rolling out bales of hay on top and then you're you're kind of like swath or strip grazing a bale and then you're moving them so that they're not compacting on that area you're, you're gonna you're gonna get the cover of the soil with the hay and the manure and the defecation you're going to use the compaction to drive the seed in uh, on top and you have that that nice layer of of or organic matter uh, on top of it and then you you move them around so that it doesn't so that the animal doesn't stand there the whole time because even through the winter it can get muddy you know a lot of hoofs and a lot of weight on one spot no matter what your practices are are gonna lead to bare soil so it's just it's kind of a, an interesting way to do that in the winter time to help for the following season and then you probably wouldn't come back to that for a full year uh try to let the let those grasses grow and and uh and and do do its work so it's, it's kind of an, uh, a cool thing. Some guys are bale grazing where they're just separating paddocks and putting bales out in the wintertime and, you know, fencing it off. Um, so, you know, that's another, another cool practice. It's, it's, it, it's much, I'm not going to put a percentage on it, but it is much more difficult to run cows all year in than some of the Southern States. Oh, I bet. Or, or yeah. So a lot of guys get pretty creative. And again, I'm not talking from experience. This is just me trying to learn as much as I can. So, um, the guys who do do it and are profitable are, those are, those are some of the biggest wizards in agriculture, in my opinion, hmm. like the, and, and, and you're gutting it out. Like it is not nice up here in the winter time. Like I've always said Saskatchewan weans out the weenies, like, cause you know, we've got such sparse population with such high amounts of land that you kind of got to be a little, you got to have a different level of grit to live here all year round and, and make that work. And cowboys who do that, are out there in minus 40 feeding, rolling hay, you know, chipping ice out of water. Like that's, that's a level of grit that I haven't reached yet, but <laughs> God bless them because we need them to feed, um, to feed us. So, um, yeah. Yeah. That's, I'm laughing as I'm sitting in sunny, warm Texas. So way different. Yeah. That's beautiful. <laughs> yeah we, uh, we're, we're, 
I'll, I'll let you finish. We're, we're going to try to get to the Southern States this winter just for a, a bit of a winter break. So it is, the weather is beautiful down there and the people are great. So, well, thank you for joining Logan. Um, the last thing, if there's anything you'd like to plug, you can, you can go ahead and do that. Uh, yeah, I guess do a couple of things. Uh, I'm just going to say that, you know, egg retails are getting better every day at trying to build a more sustainable, um, uh, agricultural system. Like I said, everybody has work to do. It's not one person. It's everybody has work to do. Um, and then again, I'm going to plug, uh, my podcast and business. Uh, I, I, with two other, uh, fine gentlemen work on the anecdote podcast. So, um, we talk everything, sports, agriculture, politics. Um, it's, it's a really diversified mix. And then, uh, my, my farming operation, you can find it on Instagram at, at fire and farm S A S K. So, uh, A N D fire, A N D farm S A S K. Um, small little journey. Um, there isn't much there, but, um, I'm building towards that one day and trying to lead by example in the, uh, ruminant soil health space and and just just trying to learn learn and have fun my my learning budget is very high so that's uh <laughs> i love that what i'll say and then i'll make sure to, to yeah. include that in the show notes too because <clears throat> like you were saying this is you just wrapped up your first year so i think for the folks that would be interested it'd be they should definitely follow you and, and follow that journey along to see what that's like because that's just such a great example so thank you again logan yeah you know, man, appreciate you having me on. Um, like I said on the phone, I think having these conversations and podcasts like like this and, and others are just one step closer to sovereign food security. And at the end of the day, um, you want to feed your family, you know, nutrient dense, um, high quality meat and produce. And it starts with small farms and guys doing it differently, um, different systems. Um, and I, I like I said, yeah, the the only thing that I know that pays for my family every time is feeding them whole nutritious foods. So, um, just, just talk to farmers, talk to a farmer, go to a farmer's market, ask questions, read a book. Like there's, there's way more good guys than bad guys in egg. And, and, you know, even big egg gets demonized. All those guys are doing it at the end of the day is trying to feed their family and all that they just want to have a conversation then just, Egg is such a heartwarming and and beautiful place to live or beautiful place to work in. So um, all I can say is just keep keep education um, high on on learning like these different systems. Just yeah, just go talk to a farmer, man. It's it's beautiful what you'll find out. I agree. Well, thanks, y'all. Have a good one. You can find the full video on YouTube at Their Genesis.